Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Mari Brown in my house in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in my apartment in New York. Coming up on today's episode. From WBEZ Chicago, it's Today Whatever. I'm Ira Glass. Where we talk about whatever today. But we do talk about whatever. That's actually yeah, not, yeah, yeah. It's not untrue. Today's guest is Ira Glass, the host of the long-running, seminal, and wildly popular radio show and podcast, This American Life. This American Life has more than 4 million listeners per episode and was the birthplace of two other little shows you may have heard of, Serial and S-Town, both of which went absolutely incredibly insanely viral. Ira does these seven things I've learned live performances across the U.S., and he was planning to go to London and Manchester, but it's been delayed due to coronavirus. But keep an eye out. I've seen him live once, and it's a really cool experience. Ira is the last person I met before the coronavirus restrictions started going into place, so you'll hear in the interview that it's sort of a line in the sand moment, a kind of the day where it all turned. But before we get into all of that, we just wanted to take a moment to say a big thank you to everyone for all the stories that you shared with us of what you've been doing and thinking about through this pandemic. Yeah. There's a lot to process. There's a lot to talk about. So we've given you some extra content this week. It's a full episode um, and we hope you enjoy it. Yeah. You know, we're adapting right along with you to this very new reality, (laughs) Mm. Uh, which means that our programming might shift slightly as our new normal shifts. Um, And it feels like our new normal is shifting every day. And we also wanted to say that, you know, it's not easy. For me, it's been a really horrible feeling, honestly, to watch friends and loved ones lose jobs or come down with symptoms, Mm. um, to see like hospitals filling up and to know that there's more to come. Yeah. And I think the hardest part, Grizz, is like adjusting to living our lives while not knowing, you know, like not knowing how it ends or when it ends. Completely. Yeah. And all this while being physically secluded. It's a lot. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a lot. It is a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and we deserve to be easy on ourselves while it's a lot. Mm. But I will say, Grizz, that having conversations about culture, even though they can feel trivial sometimes uh, in the midst of all that difficulty, but I'm finding that talking with you and watching things and preparing for this show is like kind of getting me through. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, Lila, likewise. Um, yeah. And you're right. Like It is a scary time. And I think, you know, I think it's it's funny because we're constantly dealing with all these problems of scale all the time. You know, on the one hand, this like this, you know, it feels like this kind of existential threat of a virus, which is particularly scary if you have loved ones who are ill or who are at risk of, of becoming ill. Right. And then at the same time, we're also coping, as you say, with this just really sudden radical shift to our daily lives. And And like we can't just sit frozen to the spot thinking about coronavirus all the time because we do have to continue working. You know, we're lucky that we still have jobs in this in that sense. Mm -hmm. And so we're dealing with both of these things at the same time. And then at the same time, we're not seeing all the people who we normally would see and rely on um, in our everyday lives. Yeah. And we have to create some sense of normalcy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Even even social normalcy. Yeah. Which never existed kind of like this before. No, it's really hard. And it's like on the one hand, you know you have to stay at home. You know that that's the way to stop the spread of infection. We all know that. 
but knowing that doesn't actually make the isolation easier, really, emotionally, I don't think. Like, on some level, intellectually, you know it, but it's hard still. Yeah. And I've been thinking, like, what does this feeling and this kind of isolation do for things like trust and community in the long term? I mean, you know, it's now normal to cross the street when you see someone walking towards you. I know, and we look at them with, like, fear in our eyes. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it. a horrible feeling. And But then at the same yeah. time, you know, we're kind of you know we have a street whatsapp and we're buying food for elderly people who can't get out and there's loads of community stuff happening that I wasn't really aware of before you know it's not all good and it's not all bad in terms of the response yeah it's like we'll develop some semblance of agoraphobia but also finally know our neighbors (laughs) yeah on the plus side um (laughs) yeah it's very confusing anyway I mean we've been thinking about all of this stuff and I hope that this podcast can provide some kind of mental stimulation, maybe even some solace. Or maybe, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just nice to hear a different voice in your kitchen when you're making dinner coming to you from the outside world. I mean, I know (laughs) I've been enjoying podcasts for that reason. Yeah, for sure. I mean, podcasts are um, company to me while I'm cooking dinner and cleaning um, what seems like an endless stream of dishes. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how, but... Well, I think it's because um, we're eating lunch at home. So much washing up. Yeah, we're oh. just eating oh, <laughs> eating so much at home. But, you know, in all seriousness, uh, we hope in some small way Culture Call can be one of the many things that you all consume that helps get you through this time. Yeah, definitely. And on that note, Grizz, um, how have you been? Well, Lila, um, you know this, but not everyone knows. Um, I am five months pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're like, how have I been? I've been fine. I've been pregnant. Still pregnant. <laughs> Still pregnant. It's amazing. Um, yeah. No, I mean, it is. Um, and I have been wondering about how to kind of, you know, how to say this on the podcast and um, when to say it. And this week, I decided I had to. Mm. It was feeling strange. The idea that I wouldn't say it was starting to feel strange, you know, because obviously being pregnant is a big life shift under any circumstances. Right. Right now, it's really weird. Um, and it can be frightening, you know. It's a frightening time to go through a big change and to be very reliant on a health service that seems to be uh, crumbling. Yeah, I just... I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Um, I feel like this will be a story for your baby. Like I was born in the aftermath of this virus. (laughs) I know, as you were saying last time, this will pass, all things pass, mm-hmm. and like one day I'll be sitting at the kitchen table talking to a little person saying, well, you know, there was this thing called coronavirus just before <laughs> right. you were born. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, what's been getting you through the past few weeks? It's a good question. Like five months pregnant is not so pregnant that I'm like waddling around, you know, I'm still kind of trying to be active and I've found that getting away Mm. from my screen, like getting away from my laptop and my phone and all of that as much as possible has actually helped me a lot. It's funny though, because it, because culture is now so online, it means I've actually been consuming less culture than I would have done, (laughs) um, you know, had these weeks been normal weeks. Yeah. And I mentioned on the little episode that we recorded a few days ago, um, that I discovered gardening. Um, and that has been, I think a really positive thing for me to do because you know, you're planting something that's not going to show itself for a few weeks or months. And it's it's therefore kind of a future looking thing to do. Um, Mm. It's working with your hands. 
Uh, there was a really nice piece in the FT recently about gardening as, quote, weeding the psyche and the relationship between, like, therapy and gardening, um, which I'll put in the show notes because I think it's a really lovely read. Nice. And yeah, and like everyone else, also trying to stay fit, I think. I mean, it's a challenge when you can't it get is. outside. Um, I've been doing prenatal Pilates classes on YouTube, which is like a mm-hmm. whole world I did not know about that exists. Um, and I find it quite reassuring to think of all the other pregnant people who are in their living rooms doing these things at the same time as me. It's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think I'm not alone in feeling distracted um and feeling anxious definitely um i think everyone has been um and therefore i find if i sit down to watch something on netflix or like i pick up a book it's just too easy to flip back to looking at coronavirus news you know yeah i feel um, the same i just can't my head isn't in the right space for that to be honest i really need a good tv recommendation from you so i hope you can provide yeah. that i got you i have one stay tuned <laughs> Um, I did, however, watch one thing, which I, I do want to recommend um, because I think Please. it's great. Um, it's a film called Honeyland. Have you heard about this film? No. It could be about so many things. From name. <laughs> uh, you got to hear me out here, OK, because it's a documentary yeah. about a beekeeper in rural Macedonia. Um, okay. Which <laughs> a lot of things I don't know much about. Well, exactly. It's not for everyone necessarily, but it's kind of unexpectedly funny and it's very very beautiful but without kind of romanticizing this very harsh life I mean this single woman who lives with her elderly mother she's basically got beehives in caves on like up mountains and is scrambling around harvesting honey wow but it's interesting because it's kind of about a lot of things that are quite pertinent now I think you know even though she lives in a cave and without running water or electricity, it couldn't be more different from our lives. But also it's like, it's really about solitude and how mm. humans cope with solitude. It's about family and her relationship with her aging mother is, I mean, it will make you cry. It's just heartbreaking. And then these neighbours turn up who are a real mixed bag. And it's quite interesting about having to get along with people in tough situations. It's not a documentary, is it? It's a film? It is a documentary. It's a documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, She's one of the last wild beekeepers. What a story. It's an amazing story. It was nominated for Best Documentary at the Oscars. It didn't win, but it like it has had quite a lot of press. Like This isn't a kind of random discovery, but it's really worth watching. Great. Where can you find it? Is it on Netflix? It's not on Netflix, but you can stream it like on YouTube or Google Movies or any, anywhere like that. That sounds really good. I thought of you. I thought you would like it. I mean, I know Macedonia and Armenia are not that close. You know, they're not they're not the same country. No, Macedonia is right above um, Greece. Yeah, I mean, the landscape felt quite Greek to me. Mm-hmm. Dry and wild. Um, yeah, really kind of rugged and beautiful. I mean, I think I think it would appeal to you. Anyway, great. Sorry if you hate it, but let me know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of time, Grizz. So I think I'll I think I'll take up your recommendation. <laughs> and Lilo, how about you? What have you been doing to keep sane in these insane times? I've been doing my best. Um, a few things. I have a few cultural recommendations for you. One is I completely agree um, about keeping fit being this sort of like weird new challenge. I, 
used to run and running outside in the park near my uh, apartment in Brooklyn can feel a little more stressful than it used to. I mean, I don't mind walking, but running, I just feel like people get too close to me. You know? mm. um, so I have been doing these live workout classes on Instagram. And the one that I want to recommend is my favorite free one. Uh, it's called The Salt Drop. And I used to take it in New York. It's this combination of yoga and Pilates and bar and plyometrics and cardio. It like makes zero sense and I love it. (laughs) And the instructor is keeping his small business afloat by providing free classes on Instagram Live Mm -hmm. and then letting people donate on Venmo what they can. Um, Which I think is a real public service because so many people have lost their jobs. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And you know, yesterday... I was like jumping around my apartment <laughs> like a crazy person <laughs> at the end of that class and just being able to like move a lot and sweat um, mm. made me start to cry. Like I was just like jumping and crying and thinking like, at least I have my health, at least yeah. I have my body and yeah. I can move my body. Even though when you feel cooped up, like the idea that you can still sort of like... Yeah, you can still get your heart rate up. Yeah, the idea that you're not totally like stuck mm. felt good. Um, relatedly, uh, virtual dance parties are a thing now. Yes, I've been hearing about and, these and I really want to go <laughs> <yeah>. to one. <laughs> I recommend one called Club Quarantine by DJ D Nice on Instagram, um, which is a funny one because celebrities keep dropping in. So like a couple nights ago, Michelle Obama was there and wow. Bernie was there and Oprah and Will Smith <laughs> and then like J-Lo turned up and Drake turned up. Um, And the idea of all of them like dancing with me in a physical nightclub together (laughs) is hilarious. So doing it virtually feels like just this like weird pleasure. So I've been doing that too. My third thing Mm -hmm. is a TV show recommendation, which I know you asked for. This is like the only thing that I've been able to binge watch since I started. I keep putting on movies like comfort movies from the 90s. Uh, I like immediately get distracted like you. Um, Yeah. But... I found a TV show on Netflix called Unorthodox. It's like a four-part series. It is incredible. I inhaled it. It was based off of a memoir of the same name uh, by a woman named Deborah Feldman. It came out in 2012, which (laughs) was always on my list of things to read, and I'm sad to say I didn't actually read it. Um, It's basically a memoir by a woman who left the Hasidic community, which is like an extremely Orthodox Jewish community Mm. across the world, but uh, there's a big community in Brooklyn. So the series details the Satmar Hasidic community in Williamsburg, and it's just fascinating to see how an extremely insular, old-fashioned community exists in a bustling modern city, Mm. (laughs) and how they sort of brush up against, you know, 2020, (laughs) yeah, and still maintain um, really often extreme rituals. So this show kind of brings you into the apartments that I you're never able to see and brings you into their weddings and into their rituals. Seeing inside that community was wow. And then the actual storyline was just like impossible to stop. So highly recommended, unorthodox. Okay, great. Thank you. I am going to definitely watch that probably tonight. <laughs> great. So last week we asked the listeners, you guys, to let us know what's been going on, what you've been thinking about, what you've been doing Um, And here are some of our favourite responses. The first one is from Harriet, who's in Oxfordshire. Hi, Lila. Hi, Grizz. Uh, I was thinking about your question, and I think a lot of the things I've been doing are things that involve quite sort of calming uh, systems. 
So a lot of the food I've been cooking has been things like uh, gnocchi and fresh pasta and dumplings, which are all things that sort of involve these very repetitive, stupidly time-consuming in any other situation movements. Um, but in this scenario, there seems to be something quite nice about just, you know, making 50 identical uh, small beige objects for some reason. And maybe in a similar vein, the podcast that I've been really enjoying is Over the Road, which is this podcast about the American trucking industry. And I think maybe at a point in time when you don't entirely feel like you can trust in the systems around you to sort of just listen to this very soothing account of how every night there are, you know, tens of thousands of trucks out on the road just getting essential supplies to where they need to be. Uh, and then next week, I think I'm going to try bird watching. Hi, Grizz and Lila. My name's Tim Pinder. The thing that strikes me is about the sort of democratisation of music. Neil Young has started these fireside session uh, live streams from his home in Colorado. And this isn't about, you know, superstars showing off their bling. This is him sort of pottering around the house, moving from one location to the other. That just gives a real sense of his desire to... Uh, to share, to to comfort, to bring joy and reassurance, and it's it's just wonderful to be um, part of. Uh, this is Kimmy from London. Um, what I've noticed being in lockdown for a couple of weeks now is just thinking about food constantly, thinking about buying it and eating it and what to cook, and then eating too much. So I felt a lot of that, but. Hopefully that won't continue so much. So I'm Patrick. I live in Los Angeles. And I also have been gardening a lot. Uh, a lot, actually. And, and really getting back into it. Partially because of, I guess, a desire to want to control food supply and grow my own vegetables. Uh, but also getting closer to nature and, and having a, a way to kind of use your hands and get a little messy and period. Hi, my name's Fiona and I'm from Bromley in South East London. Whenever I find myself in a crisis or um, a time of sudden change, the only thing that gets me through is watching back-to-back episodes of the British sitcom Peep Show. When I had my three daughters, it was the same. All I wanted to do was lie in a salt bath or sit on my rubber ring and watch Peep Show episodes. And now that's what I find I'm turning to again. Okay, and here's one we got from Maddie via Instagram that stood out to me. It also responds to Tim's point about the democratization of culture in an interesting way. Maddie wrote in to ask an interesting question, which is, are celebrities okay? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) She said, I veer between bemusement at their TikToks and live streams, sheer frustration at their attempts to produce relatable content from their L.A. mansions while saying, stay inside. We're all in this together, guys. And I worry that they're all a bit unhinged. (laughs) One example is Vanessa Hudgens, who basically live streamed to say, like, so what? People are going to die, which was just horrible. Mm. She said it's so interesting what happens when 
PR people can't intervene, like what happens when celebrities are unleashed on their own without their handlers. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and actually, yeah, you see like January Jones uh, of Mad Men fame sort of dancing around her apartment. and or, well, I, I doubt it's an apartment. Dancing around her beautiful home in face masks. And Maddie said, uh, I used to think coronavirus would be a great leveler, but I do think certain celebrities need reminding that staying inside for them is very, very different from someone living in an inner city block of flats or in an unsafe environment. Yes, that is so true, actually. I mean, we're all going mad together, but we're not all in it together in the same way. I think that's really important. The other one that stood out to me is my friend Monica Torres uh, is a work-life reporter at Huffington Post. And she wrote a piece recently that I loved called Please Don't Be Guilted Into Being More Productive During the Coronavirus. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, it was about not becoming your own punishing boss during a global pandemic. You know, she's like, we're surviving. (laughs) Mm. That in itself is something that we're doing actively. Um, And so she did a little audio note for us. I wrote this story in reaction to all the King Lear tweets I was seeing, reminding me that Shakespeare wrote King Lear while theaters were shuttered for a pandemic. I was seeing Instagram posts reminding me I could like make the most of this moment. And I feel like I'm really good at resisting hustle culture a lot of the time, but this time I was feeling guilty for not completing my deadlines, for feeling distracted. I don't think you need to do your best work during this time because best is relative. During pandemic, it may look totally different. Um, Don't beat yourself up if you're falling behind and know when to cut your losses on a day. That was helpful for me. I completely agree with all of that. I mean, one of my first thoughts when all of this started was like, well, you know, at least this will be a great time for self-improvement. Think of all the books I can Mm. read. Think of all the elaborate meals I can make. But... You know, Monica's right. Like, this is not the time for self-improvement. We all just need to do whatever it is that we need to do in order to stay healthy, basically. And the self-improvement kick is is capitalism. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's like, keep even when you can't go, keep going, keep going. Write that Pulitzer Prize-winning book, you know? Yeah, well, it all comes back to self-optimization, doesn't it? And, like, this is not the time for self-optimization, I don't think. (laughs) Yeah, this is the time for doing your best. Anyway, we loved hearing your voice notes, and you can keep sending them in and keep writing to us at culturecall at ft.com. We're also going to put a link at the top of our show notes to a little form that you can click and just fill out right from your phone, which will go straight to us. And also, thank you to everyone who's filled out our survey. Um, You might remember we mentioned this a few episodes back. Uh, It's still live, and we'd love you to tell us what you think about the show. Um, Basically, your feedback can really help us develop it and give you more of what you like. Um, and you can find it at ft.com slash culturecallsurvey. We'll put that link in our show notes as well. You also get a chance to win a pair of Bose wireless headphones if you fill it out. So that's an incentive if improving the show is not incentive enough. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> okay, so Ira Glass... Lila, this is a silly question, but why did you want to interview him? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Why does anyone want to interview? Like, I mean, what's so interesting about Ira Glass? Can you tell me? What's so, 
um he's fine uh he he's he may he may or may not have created uh one of the most seminal podcasts that exists um no but honestly this american life um is often people's first podcast you know when you're told oh there's this podcasting thing you should download this american life i feel like that's always the number one Mm. suggestion it was my first one yeah for sure mine too I I was thinking back to when I found out about Ira Glass and This American Life, and I'm pretty sure I was about 17. Um, I was a senior in high school, um, and there was a TV show called This American Life on Showtime. They had taken the radio show and made a TV version. Huh. I never heard of that. It didn't last long, um, <laughs> and it was very quirky and weird. And I just watched a clip on YouTube, and um, it's aged in a very strange way. But it was Ira Glass going around America, sort of interviewing Americans and telling these little stories um, that either had bigger implications or they didn't. Mm. But they got to some sort of humanity. And from there, I, I found the actual radio show. And I just remember thinking at that time, like, oh, this is interesting. Like this whole talking to people and hearing their stories and using empathy muscles. Like I almost Mm. didn't realize that that was a type of journalist you could be. And and it was like it made me think this is the kind of journalist I kind of want to be. That's so interesting. So so what did you want to ask him specifically? So, you know, broadly, I wanted to know what makes a good story. Um, They're experts at that. But also, I was curious to hear from Ira how it feels to have created the rules of a whole new genre of storytelling and then still be in the thick of it, like still be making a show, not be retired, not have your legacy hit you like after you've died, Mm. just sort of like be in the thing that you've changed. I was also curious whether he feels like he stifled creativity at all um, in the audio world by actually being so popular and what he wants to hear in podcast next. And you spoke to him at a really strange moment in time. Uh, yeah, exactly. As we said at the top, um, it was my last time on the subway. So basically, I took the train up with um, our producer, Ola Wakemi. trains all seem quiet and weird, don't they? Uh, we had bags of things knowing that we'd probably be working from home the next day. I feel like I have my entire life with me. So I had like my laptop, I had a bunch of tea, I had like all this audio equipment because I knew I'd have to be recording from home. My cables, a few books, some tea, an orange. I had like oranges, like just whatever that I had at my desk that I needed, (laughs) random books. Um, And so it was just like, I felt like I was moving into their studios. Okay, this is us. And uh, yeah, and we got there and we sat down and... um, You know, the idea that you'd go to someone's workplace now for a meeting, it just feels like a time capsule. I guess we're shaking hands. You know, you'll hear in the conversation that Ira thought we'd be working from home for like a week or two. Yeah, which sadly, I think was optimistic. (laughs) Yeah, just a little. Yeah. You know what, though? This is one of my favorite interviews we've ever had on the show. And I can't wait for everyone to hear it. So Ira Glass, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. I would like to start with coronavirus um, because it feels at top of mind. There's like a big container of Clorox in the yeah. studio. No, and I feel like actually, like, uh, what are these? These are disinfectant wipes, killed 99%. And we shook hands, I guess. We yeah, we did shake hands. Just to protect you, there you go. I'll Have use one. the Purell. Okay. This is also the case in my office, which is suggesting that we start working from home very soon. So, we start tomorrow, actually. You do? Yeah, so this do is we. the last day we're all going to be here. We're, we're, you and I are recording this on uh, Wednesday, the March 11th. Right. Yeah. So this is the beginning of a new world. Or at least two weeks of a new world or right. a month of a new world. Right. Yeah. 
I'm curious how you do your job if you can't go outside. How do you how do you tell stories if you are working from home? If you're honestly quarantined? like of all the things that that uh, that a person can report on, coronavirus is actually one of the easier ones because it's so ubiquitous and the and the reactions to it are ubiquitous. And and we are actually doing a few things for this week's radio show that we're broadcasting in two days, mm-hmm. and then we're putting together another show. And I have to say, it's so easy to find little stories because it's so widespread and the effects are so widespread. So, for instance, like, you know, just yesterday I was at the dental hygienist and she told me that the day before somebody tried to steal two face masks from like right in front of her and she caught the woman <laughs> and the woman just like said, yes, I was trying to steal them and I'm going to keep them. And, yeah. And like, just feel like, I was like, oh, my God, just like the, all the like weird little tiny effects of it. And also yeah. she explained how she witnessed a uh, fist fight on the train that morning or a near fist fight when uh, when a man started coughing on the train coming down from the Bronx. And a bunch of people were just like, Why, what are you doing on the train? Why are you on the train? Yeah. And she thought like, oh, this is going to get very, very ugly. And uh, and there's a huge confrontation. And so because it's everywhere and because telephones exist, it's actually remarkably easier to cover than so many things that we try to cover. It's true. It, it creates so many more opportunities for people to interact with each other that wouldn't normally interact. Well, it's true. And it, and it throws uh, tension into very everyday small situations. Yeah. Um, and a question into everyday small situations. Like another a story that we're actually preparing for this week is like one of our producers, Lily, her sister tried to get face masks for their mom mm. at, uh, in uh, in a California town and because their mom works in healthcare and, um, and couldn't find any in the pharmacy. But a woman at the pharmacy said to her, but I, uh, I've saved some, and I'll sell you some. There's later. a black market. Yeah, I'll meet you, and literally had her like meet her <laughs> in a Safeway grocery store parking lot, and asked her for a hundred dollars for a box of ten. So, so I'm saying, like, <laughs> like so I'm saying, dark. like, like so, so I feel like there's, there's, um, there's little changes here and there all over the place, and and kind of right now that's how we're doing it because. Um, we're on once a week, and so I feel like the big news breaks on it are, you know, being covered by by news organizations that are doing breaking news. You know, ideally, I'd love it if we could go out with some of the researchers who are going around trying to do the epidemiology mm. and trying to trace where the where the outbreak is as they're spreading and do documentary work that way. But, yeah. but we haven't hooked that up yet. I want to bring it back a little bit. Our listenership is pretty global. Okay. Many, many Americans know This American Life. Some of our listeners may not. And I'm curious, the show is called This American Life. What does that mean? It means that when we named the show, we really never anticipated we would be successful enough to have an audience (laughs) outside of the United States. Because it's not really, like, if you were to think about it, it isn't really the most, like, easily transportable name Right. Uh, if you're trying to get an audience in, like, (laughs) Manchester and, you know, Berlin so that was a mistake for sure. <laughs> um, what the show is uh, for people who haven't heard it, it's a it's a documentary show. It's been on since the 1990s. At first on public radio here in the United States, uh, the American equivalent of the BBC, and uh, it's a weekly hour long show. And it's always been kind of hard to describe. And the description that I feel like we've 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 come up with, which I guess is the best one we could come up with anyway, is that that, that it's stories that are true stories, but they unfold like little movies. Uh, for radio, like there are characters and scenes and people who hopefully you connect to. And then what you're watching is you're watching things unfold for them. And so it's journalism, but it's narrative journalism. And and there's a style of narrative journalism that, that we were big champions of. Uh, and uh, that has become kind of a, a, uh, a genre to itself in podcasts. Like our staff is the staff that created the podcast Serial. Um, and uh, 
which is done in the style or a variation of the style of our show. And so basically, um, you know, the stories, you just want to hear what happens next. Mm -hmm. Um, And then sometimes they're about very small personal things with no kind of political uh, impact or big social impact. Uh, the more like little novelistic pieces about how a family works or how, you know, somebody who's trying to start a business or just whatever it is. And um, and then sometimes uh, we take, you know, we'll go to Hong Kong and, you know, go with the protesters and go with the pro-Chinese forces and find narratives there. In in that way, like it can be a very traditional documentary show and what make it different from, I think, the kind of thing that people might be used to listening to on the BBC or in other countries or the ABC in Australia or the CBC in Canada would be that it's, it's just designed to be more fun. It's just designed from the ground up as an entertainment, much, much more aggressively mm-hmm. and looking for stories that will be entertaining in addition to everything else. So if you could rename it now, what would you call it? That is such a good question. Um, I mean, it's, it's funny, like the name that I wanted to give it was not This American Life, but American Whatever, because <laughs> it had a kind of like, oh, whatever, whatever we'll put on. Um, broad, and, uh, broad, yeah. Like and so and so and so, it's very broad, yeah. And um, uh, I think I would want to capture the feeling of today and whatever. So maybe just <laughs> today, whatever. Yeah. Though I have to say, I don't think anybody on <laughs> my staff would be with me on that. They would just be like, "No, it sounds like you're stoned or something." <laughs> today, Welcome to today, whatever. From WBEZ Chicago, it's today, whatever. I'm Ira Glass. Where we talk about whatever today. But we do talk about whatever. That's actually yeah. not yeah, it's yeah. not untrue. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people don't know how journalists find people to interview and find good stories. I, I want to know like how you find stories and what makes someone's story really compelling and what makes a good interview. But I thought maybe we could do that through the lens of an actual episode. Okay. Um, the one that's been on my mind recently is We Come From Small Places. Oh. Um, the one about the West Indian Day parade oh, sure. in Brooklyn. Yeah. It's hosted by your colleague Neil Drumming. Mm-hmm. And um, as usual, different journalists sort of tell different stories from the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk to a set to of kids. kids. Yeah. yeah, because it's this big uh, parade that happens once a year in a West Indian neighborhood in New York that is also, there's, a, uh, there's been a, a Hasidic Jewish uh, part of the neighborhood Right. For, for I don't know, a century, a half century at least. And uh, staff who are people of color, they went out and talked to people. Who, actually, I talked to tons of people of color too. But they're like, could you also, especially, <laughs> and especially in addition to interviewing just kind of whoever you want, uh, you know, like you'll talk to the Jews because you're the Jew. <laughs> and uh, and uh, just see like, you know, how, how, they, uh, how they're doing. Yeah. And, and in all of that, you know, like we all talk to tons and tons of people and then right. just, you know, pick the best ones. So my question is, how do you start out? Like you... You go out looking for something to happen. How do you organize it? And then how do you know when something's happened? I mean, for something like that, you know, like first we analyze like what are the what are the parts of this parade we want to document? And there are these basically these big teams uh, that you know each put together money and floats and costumes and all. And we realize we have need to get into some of those teams, and so we call around and find out who the big ones are and look for whether the leaders are interesting talkers and or will talk to us and get mm-hmm. turned down by lots of people. And then we go out and talk to the teams. And there was a day where, where uh, three of us went out to Brooklyn, Neil, and another producer, Jessica, and I, and went to one of the teams and kind of talked to, you know, there were like 50 people there, like getting their costumes, picking them up, and went back to the costume room. And we did all sorts of interviews for that. And most of that stuff never ends up on the air. It really is just like scouting because what we're looking for is plot. Mm-hmm. Um, um, generally, we'll, we'll go out and we'll look and look and look until we find um, real narrative. 
at the at the parade that you're asking me about, it really is you just wander around and talk to people. And honestly, I have hours of of interviews with people, people in the rain, mm-hmm. vendors. Like I, 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 you know, I basically worked up stories on a bunch of different people. Right. Um, and these kids who I found, I just, you know, I just basically you try one thing and another and another. And that was was lucky in that it played out as a perfect fable because these two young boys who were brothers uh, clearly were scared of this uh, parade of black people in their neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know, obviously because of things adults had said, but knew enough not to kind of say it directly, no. uh, but but said enough. It's very noisy and dangerous. What's the dangerous part? People are walking around crazy. Have you seen anything crazy? Yes. And then one of them revealed that he was he had a knife that he was using just in case. That he, 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 he like, had a pair of scissors. A pair of scissors, yeah. that's right. Just in case anything happens. He fetches them and shows me. To be clear, these scissors are kid scissors, like safety scissors, like you'd use in second grade. What were you going to do with the scissors? If someone would come with a knife, I would tell them, look over there and grab the knife and then stab them. Your brother's laughing. You don't think that plan would work? No. I think it would work. And then, in a way that, like, you can't ever anticipate, the nicest, most wonderful, like, black ladies just, like, walk into the scene. Hey, guys. We lived here 20 years. And then they're like, oh, this used to be our building. We used to live in that apartment right there. You know, like the same building that these boys live in. My room used to be right there. Mommy's room, Keisha's room. My room, then living room. This is a great building. You know, it's only seven apartments in this apartment building, and they're so huge. And you just see, like, oh, here's these fears of these, like, little white kids, and, like, here's the reality of these, like, utterly lovely black ladies. And, and, then, and then as the reporter, what you're doing is trying to make sure people say things on tape. And I'm 50. And then were there Hasids in the neighborhood on the block that back then? We used to live in the building with them. We have no problem with the Orthodox Jews. Never. We play with them. There's great houses down there. So I'm asking the boys about the women. I'm asking the women about the boys. I'm trying to get them to interact mm-hmm. so there can be a narrative arc to it. They stroll off. The 12-year-old tells me that one of them slipped him a dollar when I wasn't watching. Biggest sale of the day. Those ladies, so nice. New Yorkers can be so friendly. I know that's not stereotypical. It was like a fable about <laughs> about, yeah. about race relations. In, in a tiny little moment, you know, I just got very, very, very lucky. It's such an amazing, that scene was like. But I have to say, like, like yeah. if you're trying to explain our show to people who have never heard it, you know, it's documentary reporting, but really it's so out for fun. Right. Like so much of it is we want it to be funny and you want it to have a feeling. Like, like the yeah. whole purpose of doing a story is that it's an engine for feeling. I felt that way about the one where you went to the refugee camps in Greece. Um, my dad is from Greece, so I've been going oh. back and forth for my whole life. And first of all, I mean, it like created a feeling. It, it, it gave people a feeling to what the actual experience is like to be a refugee and, and to be a Greek and to be there and et cetera. But there was this moment that was tragic, but you made it funny, but also tragic, where there were thousands of Syrian refugees that were calling this phone number um, to do some procedural thing that would give them the visa that they needed to stay. It was like some procedural... It, they, needed, they needed a piece of paper saying that, that they were refugees in Greece. Like right. They needed Greece to say, like, yeah, they're here, kind of. Right. That's, that's what it was. So they were calling a government official line, and for months and months, and they were calling, like, hanging up, picking up, calling again. Every time their call drops, they scramble for the mouse. 
It's like playing a very repetitious video game, an incredibly boring one, with very high stakes. 25 deadening minutes pass this way. And then you just sort of see, you bring us to the other side of that. Well, we, we went to the other side of it because one of the refugees was just like, I wonder if it's just one person <laughs> answering the phone. And then we're like, yeah, I wonder if it is. And then it turned out it was. It was one Greek woman. <laughs> Again, utterly lovely lady. Right, right. <laughs> Katerina told me she read a news article about a Syrian man who dreamed all night about Skype. She switches to English to explain. He was saying that uh, every night he's dreaming, uh, I'm trying to sleep and I see to my dreams that I'm calling on Skype. And really, I wanted to tell him that, oh, my friend, I have the same problem. <laughs> really. It was so Greek. I mean, that was all I felt was like, this what do is you mean? so... I mean, just in that, like... Uh, the Greek government is inefficient in like a com- h- hilarious and tragic way at the same time. Once uh, my mom lost her passport in Thessaloniki where my dad grew up and she went to the Greek... This was not very long ago. It was a couple years ago. She went to the police station and she said, do you know, has it showed up? They said, no. If other people call, we'll ask them. I said, can you just let... She said, can you let the other precincts know? They said, no, we don't have internet. And she said, what do you mean? You have a computer right there. What do you mean? You can't email them? Like, you have a computer. And they say, no, we use that for word processing. And that was like wow. it. They just sort of like were like, that's not weird. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to bash the Greek government. I mean, no. they're like, Greeks are wonderful people. But that moment of that one woman sitting, I thought, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so on another note, on dating apps, there are terrible prompts. And one of them is, who is your ideal dinner date? And um, a common name I see is yours. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. And it's like Ira Glass and Abraham Lincoln. It's always like Ira Glass and a dead legend. <laughs> sort of those two. In wow, stuff. I had no idea. Yeah, and I find it really interesting. And I wanted to I do too. <laughs> it makes me feel like I should go on a dating apps. Except yeah. Except I'm in love with somebody, so I'm not going to. But like, wow, I would do so well. Yeah. You're a common interest. <laughs> Wow. But I think um, these are men saying it? These are it? men saying it. And it's usually sort of like a historical figure in you. Ira Glass and Jesus. Ira Glass and, you know. Um, I have uh, to say, but I, it's not just like marketing. That, like by using my <laughs> name, they're saying like, he seems kind of sensitive. So maybe a little bit of that will rub off on my right, image. And then Abraham exactly. Lincoln, you can tell like, I know I'm some smart things. Yeah, I'm smart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like if I can serve that function for some for some sad, lonely man. I, <laughs> I, I support him in every way possible. That's very strange. Yeah. I had no... I, that is like a really specific level of fame, isn't it? It is. Wow. New York men between the ages of 30 and 40. Anyway, my question is also what it made me think of is like your legacy. Like a lot of people get their legacy after they die and um, you're still doing the thing mm-hmm. that you've kind of transformed enough to be the person that in a dinner party. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so like... How does that feel? That feels great, but, yeah. but I feel like it doesn't do anything for me. In a way, it's like a perfect legacy because I feel like your legacy happens after you're dead, so you don't get anything out of it anyway. <laughs> right. Um, like, who cares what your legacy is? Like, I don't. Like, you know, like, and I feel like I'm making a radio show slash podcast, so it's not like, it's not like the works of Shakespeare. It's not going to be around. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we're going to stop making it, and then, you know, it'll sit on the internet, and people will go to it less and less and less often, and then, then nobody will remember it. And that seems fine. That seems totally fine. Do you really believe that no one will ever remember it? Yes. 
I do. I think that's the most likely outcome because that's what happens with everything. Like, tell me the most popular radio show of like 1940. You know what I mean? Like, you and I have never, we'd be making up answers, you know? Like, of but course, did that that's what's radio show like create a genre. I have no idea. I mean, the genre that I've created is like what? Like, entertaining narrative journalism? Like, it's not like, I don't know, you know, that's not, that's not what. Is, I don't know. Like you know what I mean. Like I feel like I understand. Like there's a bunch of shows that are in the style of our show, and mm-hmm. I totally. That's that in a way is is the more. That's the thing that feels like something to me. Like that's the thing I never could have anticipated. Like like I I don't know how to say this in a way that will get it across with the actual like feeling that it has. But but when I started the show, it was with three people. It was a tiny budget. And really, we didn't see it as, like, a thing that would last in mm. any way. We just saw it as, like, we like doing this kind of thing, so let's just make this. And then the fact that that it survived this long since the 1990s and that also other people like, oh, yeah, that is really nice. That's a really nice way to make a story. And, like, let's make more stories like that. Like, it's it's both surprising. It, it's, it's the part of it I never would have. I never would have predicted like it just didn't I didn't have ambitions of that it just it really it was much more of a kind of oh let's make a thing that amuses us does it feel uncomfortable to get a lot of acclaim for having created this thing it doesn't feel uncomfortable but it doesn't connect in any way to my lived experience and so I feel like I don't know like whatever acclaim there is I just sort of feel like it it has nothing to do with my experience of making the show. Mm-hmm. My experience of making the show is just as as hard now as it was when we began it. Like it's just as hard to to make something good. Yeah. You know, in year 25 as it was in the first year because it's just hard to make something good. Yeah. You know. I have a related question um about that role whether you feel that it's sort of overstated or not. For a long time everything in the UK sounded like the BBC. And a lot of things in the U.S. sounded like This American Life. Uh, you mean now they sound like This American Life? And now, life. yeah. You and know? now still a lot of things sound like This American Life. I've heard you talk a lot about how you need to know the fundamentals of something in order to build on it and create something new. And I think you probably took what you learned at NPR and... Um, Invented off of that. Yeah. For sure. And there's sort of like a rubric now. You know, most of the major leaders in audio come from the school of This American Life in many ways. Do you think that being first in this way has hampered the creativity in audio do you think like you've created these rules that then everybody became afraid to break that's a really interesting question i mean i think for sure on the true crime part of it we it it, it became a set of rules that people are afraid to break you know we did the true crime show serial we didn't think of as a true crime show we just saw it as like let's do some investigative reporting on this story yeah and then and then the format of serial has been so kind of slavishly knocked off by so many podcasts you know it's just dozens of podcasts that completely steal the format of serial and the voice and the way we use music and the way the interviews go and the way the narration works yeah you know as if it was not actually invented by a person mm. who is not them um, when it comes to This American Life, it's interesting because I feel like the most successful shows that have taken what we what we do at our show um, are the shows that actually, like, changed it. Like, Radiolab was the first show, kind of the first big show to come after us, and they so changed the format where, you know, we're reading from scripts, whereas there are two people sitting in a studio talking to each other, and they shape the entire show around that. Mm-hmm. And it's sound designed in this way where, you know, music is composed for each you know, segment in each. Whereas we're just like taking music we find off. You know, <laughs> you know, just like it's 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 so designed differently with a different feeling and a different aim. 
you know, and that's just as true for, you know, like Reply All also kind of comes off the Radiolab model. Like, like I, I feel like it's been pleasing to me that the most interesting things that heard what we were doing are just like, oh, we can build on that. We can do a story with characters and scenes and feeling mm-hmm. and music underneath uh, with a narrative arc and drive towards ideas. The most interesting ones definitely try to change the form. Yeah. Do you see any shows that you like or interest you that don't have anything to do with Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, Be Marunmi, who's on our staff, uh, she does a show called Thirst Aid Kit. Yes. That's just you know two women talking about guys who they who they think are amazing, you know. And I feel like I could never produce that show or be in that <laughs> show. It's completely like not our genre at all, you know. And it's great. What are you excited to like have happen next? Listen to next. I mean, it's interesting. I'm still waiting. For, like, there've been a bunch of experiments at radio drama. Um, that are good, but nobody's done something that's as good as um, the best TV. Mm. And I feel like somebody could, you know, like you, you could, you could organize a writer's room the way you do for a great TV show with the same people who write a great TV show and make something that's so much cheaper and reach an audience that's the same size. That's what's interesting. I yeah. think people don't realize, so like something like uh, Serial or S Town or the other shows we do, the audience is as big or bigger than most television shows. And so for the creators, they would reach, you know, as big as or larger audience. And it's so much quicker to produce. Like if you think about for the actors and all, you could have them come in for a couple of days and you can yeah. do the whole thing. And it just is so, it's very possible, you right. know. And so that I'm very curious to see somebody do. So you've been doing this for t- more than 20 years? Yes. I mean, I started this when I was 19 and uh, d- doing radio. And then I started This American Life when I was in my 30s. And right. It was 1995. Right. Yeah. I'm curious about whether and how you feel like you need to start passing the baton. <laughs> okay. If you do. Um, we interviewed Caitlin Prest about a month ago for the show. Whose work, I think, is amazing. Yeah, and she's that's, incredible. that's another podcast where I feel like I could never make that show, and I'm so glad somebody did. Yeah. What a, what a great job. Her stuff is so awesome. She was saying that one of the biggest questions that she has is the power that you have as an editor, and how do you edit people whose experience is different than yours? When you're interviewing, when you're editing, you're making decisions through the lens of your experience. Yes. And I feel like your show has gotten your um, group of reporters have gotten more diverse over the years. And that feels kind of like a statement. I don't know if it is. That is us just belatedly catching up to the times and doing something we should have done long ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a way more diverse uh, staff. Of course, we're very conscious, like 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 modern journalists making yeah. things. Of uh, of the biases that uh, that the white staff bring to things, and that kind of everybody brings to things, and trying to be trying to be sensitive, and and we definitely get into regular conversations that are very open conversations. B. A. Parker, this reporter, did a story two weeks ago where she was shopping for a black church and went to this black church, uh, started going to one, and there are all these white tourists in the church, and how it just it kind of made her feel stared at, mm. and uh, like she's their entertainment. And wrote a whole thing about it, and interviewed the pastor, and did this really beautiful piece. And then there was a, there's a one of the there's like just a move in the middle of the story. The story was just sort of slowed down at one point. And hearing the mixes, I was like, oh, we should we should take this out and talk to her editor and said like the, 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 this isn't working in the piece. Uh, can we take this beat out? And uh, and Parker is like, no. Like she's like, for any black person, that's like a super important point. And mm. we're like, okay, so then let's take out this other one so that one works. And like, I, there's a lot of like 
very explicit discussion of uh, that might not be an important point from my point of view as a, as a white person hearing this story, but for the person who's making the story, it is an important point and that's an important thing to include. Mm-hmm. And so that's just part of our process. So I have to say, I don't want to be bragging about this too much. This is all very new. Yeah. Yeah. You said it happened really late. What made that shift happen? Why do you feel like it was late? I mean, uh, in the early years of the show, it was we were just getting the show on the air, and honestly, there were fewer people of color who were trained in making this kind of work to hire. So that just has become so much more possible and so much easier. And then just, you know, once it became our mission to do that, we just got better at reaching out and finding people and, and saying, do you want to come work for a radio show? Like some people who, you know, who didn't even, you know, who weren't even doing radio shows, you know, and, and pulling them in and... Um, I don't know, it was just, we were a prosperous enough show that we could stop just blindly moving from deadline to deadline and just address something that long needed to be addressed. Mm-hmm. I have to say, like, like having a more diverse staff and uh, from top to bottom, you know, like including the editors and everybody, it, you know, just like you need that in order to be able to f- report with nuance. Like, yeah. it's just, it's just, you can't do your job without it. Do you feel like it's changed the stories that you've... It completely Death. changed what we're doing stories about. I mean, that that episode you're asking about, about uh, the West Indian Day Parade, like, you know, that was, you know, it was very much driven by, like, the people of color on staff. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Last question. Um, you'll be in London and Manchester in May, and you're yes. doing this series, Seven Things I've Learned. Yes. And can you tell us what, what it is? Yes. Um, uh, so basically, um, it's an excuse to just uh, tell a bunch of uh, funny emotional stories on a stage. Right. And so uh, I stand on stage with an iPad and I can play audio and I play videos and just talk about some things that I've learned in making radio stories. So partly it's how we make these stories and how it's different from other things that are out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then partly it's just an excuse to just like tell some amazing stories that people haven't heard and that haven't been on the radio. Great. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Lila, I loved that so much. It was brilliant. Thanks. <laughs> Have I made you feel awkward? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, but thank you. No, I just enjoyed it so much. I mean, also, I love that now Ira Glass knows he's one of the people cited on dating sites as the dream dinner party guest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's yeah. true. I've got the screenshots to prove it. <laughs> I don't know, there was something about the dynamic in the studio. I felt like you were surprising him in a way that was really nice to hear. And I was interested in some of the stuff that he said, particularly about the idea of his legacy. You know, it's kind of kind of interesting to hear somebody who's at a place in their career that, that Ira Glass is take a step back and kind of actually think about, like, what does my work mean? And of course, you know, he was acknowledging the ways in which this American life has been so seminal and, like, you know, that it is copied. There are all these true crime podcasts, for example, um, that are a spin-off of Serial. Actually, I kind of loved the way he was being quite bitchy about that. And I thought that was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, you've created a monster. Right. I found it quite refreshing that he seems to be okay with the idea that maybe, like, the work that he does, the work that lots of people do in this in this world, is ultimately ephemeral. You know, like he said about the famous radio shows of the 1940s, maybe in 100 years' time, no one really will remember This American Life. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not totally convinced that This American Life will not be remembered in in decades. But it is true that that nonfiction storytelling doesn't always stick around in the same way and that you're really producing for now 
And what I was kind of struck by when I was in the This American Life studios is that one, um, they're extremely unassuming for being like the most popular radio show um, oh, really? in the US. They're in kind of a random part of the west side of um, Manhattan. They have sort of concrete floors. They have like very impressive little studio pods. But it's just kind of a small office with a bunch of nooks and crannies. And uh, over the printer, there is a sign about cereal. And next to it is an Emmy <laughs> just sitting there. Um, and it just reminded me that, like, ultimately, even if you create a very successful thing, even if you hit the peak or the pinnacle or whatever, you still have to just keep putting out a show. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and you still have, like, a boring office to go to. And you still have a lot of pressure to to make it good. Like, it doesn't stop when you succeed. yeah. No, that's true. You know, I think in a few decades time, people will remember this American life. But but to think about legacy in kind of a long term way, I don't know. I mean, I actually kind of agree with him. I, I personally find it quite liberating in a way that um, mm. journalism, as you say, is kind of for the now. It's not necessarily forever. Um, it's serving a purpose that's quite immediate and responsive. Maybe if I was a different kind of person, I'd want to make a, a big work of art that was kind of a statement that will last the centuries. But like, no, to me, that seems like an awful amount of pressure. <laughs> I'm happy to be doing something. You know, sometimes it's like I don't remember yeah. what we did a year ago on the podcast, but that's that's fine, you know? Yeah. You know, the one place where I do feel that narrative journalism has lasted a long time is in the sort of... American tradition of long form literary nonfiction, you know, it was called new journalism. Yeah, exactly. That sort of Joan Didion, Gay Talese, Tom Wolfe, Hunter Thompson era of people telling t true stories in a fiction style. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's where journalism and fiction blend, isn't it? For that reason, I think it does feel more long lasting. Like we can read these pieces of journalism, which kind of like crafted as essays you know as long long form mm. stories really um, and we do read them 50 years later because they stand the test of time in a way that a more throwaway magazine feature doesn't necessarily if we can we'll put a link to some of the best pieces of new journalism in our show notes yeah but it's interesting that you mention new journalism you know from the 60s and the 70s and that particular movement because you know, I don't think that we had that movement in Britain, like not in the same way. Mm. Um, so we don't really quite have that same tradition of, you know, literary nonfiction or creative nonfiction. We don't even really have the same magazines. I mean, there are places like the London Review of Books or Granta where you'll find like long form storytelling. But we don't have a version of The New Yorker here, you know. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I wonder if it's just partly about the economics, like, you know, it's a problem of scale. We don't have as many readers here. So a publication like that, it's harder for that, for that to exist or for lots of those kind of things to exist. But also I'm wondering, like, is it something about kind of taste and kind of expectation? Like in Britain, we really venerate fiction, you know, like Dickens and Shakespeare and Jane Austen. And mm. it's that kind of stuff. It's not so much like Joan Didion and Gay Talese. No, it's it's interesting you say that because I'm even thinking back to the way I learned writing um, and even classes in high school and college or university for you. Um, I was taking classes that were teaching narrative nonfiction, how to write it. Um, we were learning to read it. You know, we were reading Norman Mailer and Truman Capote. Mm. It was just sort of built into to the way that we understood journalism. I mean, I didn't study journalism, but I don't think it's certainly not a high school level. I don't think we have that here. It's not part of the kind of education tradition in the same way. 
Where do you think it came from? That's really interesting. And I've been trying to find out. I mean, maybe someone who's listening knows for sure and they can write in and um, and let us know. But from what I've read, I think it's about the kind of English tradition of literature and particularly the Romantic period. Um, so kind of Wordsworth mm. and people like that. And the way that they really prized imagination and creativity above the kind of boring pedestrian nature of of fact and journalism. And I wonder, like, that sense of imaginative writing has always been mm. the primary thing, you know? And yeah. journalism is kind of a bit, like, secondary. And and over in the U.S., it was around the 1960s when Gay Talese and Norman Mailer were, like, writing for the first time using fiction techniques in yeah. their reporting. And that's exactly what I think is so popular about this American life is it's um, these are real stories that feel, as Ira Glass said in, in the interview, they feel like little movies, like scenes almost mm-hmm. from a play, you know. I, I liked what he said in a different interview. He said, you know, it's it's really not that unique of an idea. I kind of was shocked that no one had done it before, taking this narrative nonfiction style and putting it in audio. Yeah, that's true, because as we've been saying, you know, it's not new in itself, but it is a new thing to hear rather than to read. And I also was surprised and interested to hear his answer that, like, that that audio that the audio world still hasn't fully figured out fiction. Mm. It makes me think of Caitlin Prest, who's doing a lot of great experimentations with fiction, uh, who we interviewed a couple months ago. But that's one thing that the UK has really figured out that the US hasn't. I mean, you have a long history of radio drama. Yeah, but I mean, have you heard a radio drama before? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to the BBC, but I mean, they sound, well, they sound very stagey. I mean, it sounds like someone's just put a microphone in front of a play, but actually kind of also not quite that. You know, the sound Mm. is very much like these Foley artists. So, you know, it's almost like um, clacking coconuts together for the sound of horses' hooves. Um, It's just, (laughs) it's... There's something, there's a kind of demographic thing. Like my parents would listen to radio dramas and maybe that doesn't bother them. But I think when you've been listening to podcasts, like, well, it's not, podcasts aren't a generational thing. Lots of people listen to them. But I just don't think there's a podcast that I've heard that does radio drama in in a kind of really different way that doesn't sound like a BBC radio play, you know, with like really inventive sound design. What's a Hollywood movie in audio form? Yeah, and I think the exciting thing is that's still up for grabs. Yeah, if somebody could figure that out while we're all under lockdown, I think many people (laughs) stuck at home would be very grateful. That's it for this week. We've put links to the two episodes of This American Life that Lila discussed with Ira Glass in our show notes, as well as a recent episode that they published on coronavirus. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. And don't forget to send us your voice memos. We want to know what you're noticing around you culturally, how you're seeing culture change, and whose work are you turning to at this very weird time. You can email those voice memos to culturecall at ft.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at GriseldaMB and at LilaRap. And we're on Twitter at FTCultureCall. Thank you all for your Instagram stories recommending our podcast. We really appreciate it. And please keep them coming. You can also help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, which is one of the main ways that new listeners discover the show. We will both be back in two weeks' time, when no doubt the world will be completely different yet again. But for now, we've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. 
Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood with production assistance by Oluwakemi Aladisui. And our music is composed by Fatum and Tristan Cassell-Delavoie. Oh, my God. Oh, okay, give me a sec. <laughs> Tom? Yeah? Can you not walk around so noisily, please? How's it going? It's going fine. It's just that I can hear it on the floorboards. Tom? <laughs> oh, that was the funniest Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.